0: And we come back to Isaiah and looking at a marvelous prophecy that Isaiah now breaks into here at the end of chapter 10 and chapter 11. The context of this prophecy is critical in understanding why what God is about to say is so glorious. Remember what we've seen in... Chapters 9 and 10 is a declaration in the last lesson of Isaiah that we saw. The anger of God and the judgments of God, and yet Isaiah four times says, yet his anger is not turned away, his arm is still outstretched. This picture that they are deserving of judgment, deserving of wrath. And describing how Assyria is going to be the nation to bring about that judgment and wrath against the northern nation called Israel and the southern nation called Judah. And then in the middle of chapter 10 we have then a description that Assyria is also going to be judged because rather than recognizing themselves as being the instrument of God and God wielding the axe against these two nations, they see themselves... As all powerful and that their gods have empowered them to destroy these nations rather than judge them. And so God is going to judge them as well. That leads now into verse 20 where we're going to pick up tonight. And we're going to notice that there's not a lot of times when you read the Bible and you say, well, that's just talking about us. But this is talking about us. And so here we are in the midst of Isaiah who's prophesying in the 700 B.C. He's talking about what is to come. Notice chapter 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. So here is this great beginning, here is this great start, and he says, now, here's what's going to happen, is I am going to create a remnant, I am going to create a people for myself, and so he says that there is a remnant that is going to return, now remember back in chapter 7, Isaiah had a kid named that. Shir Yasa means a remnant will return. And so Isaiah was told in chapter 7 for him and his son, a remnant will return, to go and prophesy to Ahaz because King Ahaz is not trusting in God. Rather, in fear of Syria and Israel coming against them in a war, they have now turned their attention to Assyria and called upon Assyria to be their ally. And so now he's is God coming along and saying what's going to happen is Assyria is going to smack you because you should have trusted me and what's going to happen is I'm going to have a remnant that's going to come and verse 20 says they're not going to lean on the one who struck him they're not going to rely upon world nations other peoples, other governments they're not going to turn their attention for hope and trust in other things They're going to rely upon me alone. And that's what he says there at the end of verse 20. They will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. and They're going to truly do it. They're going to do it faithfully, in truth, with all of their heart. And so that's what Isaiah is picturing, is that that's what's going to occur. And notice verse 22 reaches then to this Abrahamic promise. He says there in verse 22, Though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea. Now that was something that God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17. When Abraham is questioning whether he's actually going to have any descendant at all, then God says, I want you to look at the stars of the sky and see if you can number them and consider counting the sand of the sea for that is what your descendants will be and that will be your great nation. And here God comes along and basically says, I'm going to uphold that promise that I gave to Abraham. Essentially, I'm not going to wipe you out for I made that promise people of Israel will be as the sand of the sea however there's only going to be a remnant that's going to return There's going to be a small portion then that's going to be maintained after this judgment comes about. Destruction is decreed, verse 22, overflowing with righteousness. This is a just judgment on God's part as He brings about this judgment. And so then what you're seeing is this remnant being defined in these verses. They're not going to trust on outsiders, but are going to trust in God alone. That's who God's true faithful people will be. In fact, notice the phrase in verse 21, Because it has a a little bit of a double meaning there When it says a remnant will return to the mighty God There's a picture that God's people are going to come back to him But remember who Isaiah identified as the mighty God Back in chapter 9 and verse 6 He was speaking of a Messiah as he talked about this son that would be born and speaks about this one on whom all the government would rest on his shoulders. And he's called Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. All of those great descriptions that are given there in Isaiah 9. He says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have a remnant and they're going to return to the Mighty God. They are going to faithfully trust him. They will no longer listen to outsiders. They won't put their trust in them any more. Instead, they're going to trust in the mighty God. They are the ones that will be my faithful people. And so here is Isaiah way out in 700 BC describing, here's what the remnant's going to look like. They're going to be faithful to the Lord and no longer depend on anybody else. And a great lesson is learned from Isaiah here that What God is looking for in a remnant and looking for in His people is faithfulness. And it wasn't simply going to be an absolute guarantee that those who were Abraham, who could trace their lineage back to Abraham, that they would undoubtedly belong and be part of this glorious kingdom and be part of this glorious remnant. Isaiah makes that point here. He says, I might have said that you'd be as numerous as the sand of the sea, But there's only going to be a portion that are actually going to be mine. There's only going to be a remnant that are going to truly be mine. And he's not speaking in terms of invasion. He's not speaking, well, most of you are going to die, but only a few of you are going to live. He's speaking about the heart. He's speaking spiritually. And he's saying, there's a vast number of you. But only some of you are going to return to the mighty God. Only some of you are going to belong to me. And just because this Abrahamic promise was given that it would be through Abraham that all the earth be blessed, that did not mean that every single child of Abraham actually was part of the remnant or actually part of the people of God. In fact, that's the very argument that Paul makes because he quotes this very text. Over in Romans chapter 9, we'll look at a little bit there in Romans 9. The context sets up there in verse six, where where the Apostle Paul makes this point. He says, "It is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all Israelites truly belong to Israel." I'm just that, if you don't know many very good verses to keep in mind, that's a really important one to memorize. Not all Israel is Israel. Okay, not all Israel is Israel. There is a physical nation, a physical descendancy. But that doesn't mean they're the people of God. And Isaiah said it, and the Apostle Paul says it. And not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. But it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. And we studied Romans a couple years ago, and we went through that really great chapter there where Paul makes the point. Hey, Abraham had a bunch of kids, but it was only Isaac that the promise was through. And hey, Isaac had a couple of kids, but it was only Jacob that the promise was through. There's always been a remnant. It has never been all of the children of Abraham or all the children of Isaac. There's always been a remnant. And then as Paul argues that through the chapter through chapter 9, he then draws out Isaiah in verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And so this is the picture. Here is the Apostle Paul making this very point that Isaiah was making who belongs to the remnant, those who faithfully trust in God. That is who belongs to God. It is not about merely ethnicity or outward approval or carrying out certain deeds It is about people who truly trust in Him. And so verse 20 of chapter 10 of Isaiah is so important. It is people who lean on the Lord and do not lean on anybody else or anything else. That's the true remnant. And I think then what is important for us to recognize is that the true people of God then are known by their faith in the mighty God. That's who the true people of God are. People who put their faith sincerely and fully in the mighty of God. To make that point for us, I think it would be fair to say not all Christians are Christians. Just as the Apostle Paul could say not all Israel is Israel, not all Christians are Christians in that very sense. There are plenty who will claim to be followers of Christ. There'll be plenty who confess Jesus as Lord. There'll be plenty who are baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. There's plenty who are going to do all kinds of things who sit in church buildings. But the people of God are those who faithfully rely on the Lord every day. People who are the remnant of God give their heart and their life to the Lord every day. And it is not enough to say, well, I believed and I repented and I confessed and I was baptized and I'm done, I'm good, I can just cruise on into glory. We must give our lives faithfully to the Lord every single day. That is what Isaiah is picturing. Sure, they have the external things. They were circumcised on the eighth day, Israel was, but not all Israel is Israel. There is a faithful remnant. And not all those who claim to be Christians are truly Christians, but those who faithfully rely on the Lord their God with all of their heart. Now, how God explains this further in Isaiah 10, I think, is fascinating as he comes into verse 24, because what he is going to describe is that the way he's bringing about a remnant is essentially that he's accomplishing the impossible. What God is going to do is something so extraordinary that they won't even believe it. And how often the prophets talk like that and even the New Testament writers that God is going to do something that you would not believe even if it were told to you. And that's what's described here. Verse 24, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Well, why shouldn't we fear that they're coming against us? The Assyrians are going to drive us out, you said. Well, here's why they weren't supposed to fear. He gives them three answers here. Verse 25, for in a little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. The first thing he tells them, he says, my anger is going to stop. Now, why that's important is it didn't sound like that when we studied chapter 9 and 10. Chapter 9 and 10, he kept saying, my anger's not turned away and my arm is still outstretched. But here he comes along at the end of 10 and says, there's going to be a point where this is going to stop. My wrath is going to end and it will no longer be against you. Verse 26. The Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea and will lift it as he did in Egypt. So here are some great pictures. And he uses miraculous imagery here of how God is going to be victorious against the Assyrians. He says, what I'm going to do in that day, he says, not only will my wrath end, but I'm going to crack a whip against them and destroy them, just like what happened in the days of Gideon when he had 300 men and he drove off off those Midianites that's what's happening there and he speaks of that rock of Oreb that was struck with Midian he's referring to Judges chapter 7 and verse 25 there's where Gideon had makes run at them where they just basically break a bunch of pitcher lanterns and they win the battle what did they do pretty much nothing 300 men and all the Midianites are killing themselves and running hightail for the hills and he says, it's going to be a time when we attack, when he attacks Assyria, that it'll be like verse 24, the parting of the Red Sea. When they strike, verse 24, they strike the rod and lift the staff against you as the Egyptians did. Remember, that's what Moses was told to do. As they're backed up against the Red Sea and the Egyptians are coming, God tells Moses, raise your staff and wave it over the Red Sea and it begins to part. God says, I'm going to do the impossible here. I'm going to do something amazing against the Assyrians. And he very well may have in mind how when it appeared that Assyria was going to cause Judah to fall completely after capturing nearly every fortified city in all of Judah. All that's left is Jerusalem, as it's pictured in chapter 7, where Assyria is going to take it all the way up to the neck of Jerusalem. That you have in the days of Hezekiah, that an angel of the Lord takes out 185,000 Assyrians and drives them off. And so here is Isaiah prophesying, saying, I'm going to do something great in your day. It's going to be your deliverance, just like I did for Gideon, just like I did for Moses. I'm going to do it for my own sake. And then he describes verse 27, the third reason in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He says, number three, he says, not only am I going to drive them off, they're not going to even mess with you anymore. That's going to be the end of them. I'm going to take the, the yoke of Assyria off of you. You won't even have to worry about them. And so he, what a great answer here, here is Isaiah coming to King Ahaz and saying, don't trust in Assyria and don't worry about those two flaming fire brands, Israel and and Syria, because God will deliver you. And Ahaz doesn't believe in the slightest. He's out there checking the water supply line. And so Isaiah says, I can't believe you've done that because you're relying upon Assyria instead of me. Assyria is going to wipe you out right to the neck. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be gracious to you for my covenant with my servant Abraham. And so what's going to happen is my wrath will end and I'm going to do something miraculous, something impossible in your day so that the yoke of Assyria is removed from you. And so here's a great picture of how God is going to create his remnant. Verses twenty-seven through thirty-four then describe the breaking of Assyria. The key image I want you to capture is in verse thirty-three. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Key picture. Assyria, great, powerful, large tree. I'm going to cut the tops off. It's going to be the end of them. Assyria will be no more. You have nothing to fear. The impressive nation of Assyria and how powerful they will be, I will bring them to nothing. Now that imagery is important because the contrast that it draws in chapter 11. As God says, I'm creating a remnant, He's going to show how this remnant comes about through a righteous reign of His branch. Notice verse 1. Isaiah 11, verse 1. "...there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit." And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide to speak it's by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt. Of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And so, notice the contrast. This imagery is amazing. So, here is Assyria. Assyria is the great tree that's being cut down. And now he says, Let's look at Judah. Let's look at my people. And how are they described but a stump? And he says there in chapter 11, verse 1. So, here's the stump of Jesse. And when you think of a stump, there's nothing too impressive about a stump. There's the stump. It represents what used to be. Used to be life. Used to be a great tree. Used to be vibrant, but now all that's left is a stump. There it is. It represents what could have been. And God says what's gonna happen is there's gonna be this shoot that's gonna come out of this dead stump. A shoot is going to arise out of it. It pictures life coming out of devastation and loss. That God is going to do something magnificent here. In the face of the stump, a shoot is going to to arise. A branch from the roots is going to come and bear fruit. And notice the imagery is so amazing here. Because it's not only a stump. But notice it is a stump of Jesse. And I think that is really important. Instead of calling it a branch from David... Or a stump of David. He calls it a stump of Jesse. Which pictures that David's coming back. The descendant of Jesse is going to come. It's another David that's going to come. Rather than saying it's a stump of David or a branch from David. Which would indicate it's another king that came after David. Just all like all the others. And when you read the kings in the chronicles. What do you read about the kings that came after David? None of them were like David. No, they were all measured up to him. And none of them made it. They all fall short. And so rather than prophesying of yet another king who's going to fail, David's coming. The stump of Jesse's going to come. Branch. That's going to come from him. It is going to be David that's going to come. And verse 2 illustrates that all the more. When it says, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That's what happened to David. First Samuel 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The key point that's easily missed here in verse 2 is that this is David. David has come back. He is the stump. that Here's the stump of Jesse and here's the shoot that comes out of that. David has returned. And the Spirit of the Lord is going to be on him just like it was with David. And then amplifying that from verse 2 through verse 5 is this king is going to rule unlike the other kings before. Unlike Ahaz, who ruled poorly and did not trust in God and was unfaithful to the Lord, this one is going to rule in righteousness and with faithfulness. Verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Unlike Ahaz, who's ruling right now. Unlike other kings who have sat on the throne in Judah, who are descendants of David, this king is going to be entirely different. He's going to exhibit godly behavior. Verse 5, righteousness will be the belt of his ways. Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. He's going to exude the character of God. He will just adore righteousness. He will be everything that God has looked for. He is David. Come back. The perfect king will now come. And we know it's Messianic because of verse 4 which reaches back to Psalm 2 which says He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and the breath of His lips the wicked shall be killed. Our Messiah King is coming. The David that we are looking for the Messiah King is going to arrive. And so the contrast is amazing. Here is Assyria the impressive tree being cut down what the world thinks is impressive and glorious and majestic and powerful is being walked off and the unimpressive stump is going to have a shoot come out of it that's going to be the hope of the world. And how right, then, the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2 how God could use the foolish things of the world because that's exactly what He does. Instead of using an impressive nation, a glorious nation, He's going to use a stump and say, through that stump, through that nothing nation, Judah, I'm going to raise up the deliverer of the world. And so Isaiah prophesies of the righteous reign of the branch, how he's going to come and rule in faithfulness and be what none of the kings previously had been before. He will save the world. And then verses six through nine describe the nature of his rule. The first five verses describe the glorious nature of who He is and how He will rule. And verses 6-9 through nine describe the nature of this kingdom that He will rule over. It describes the characteristics of what's going to be like as He rules over the world. Notice in verse 6... They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." This is a great picture. Notice there are three characteristics about this kingdom. When the branch comes, when this new David arises, here's the characteristics of what it will be. First in verse 6, you get a picture of reconciliation, an end of hostilities. Wolf will lie down with lamb. Leopard lying down with goat. Calf and lion and fatted calf all lying together and a little child leading them. These are ridiculous images. This can't possibly be. How can lions lie down with fatted calves? doesn't work at all. And so it's a picture of the end of hostility. A total picture here of, the, of total reconciliation. Verse 7 describes there's a change of nature that's occurring. Notice that cows and bears are eating the same thing. And lions are eating straw like an ox. There's a total change of nature in these animals that's described here. And so something unusual again. Lions lying down with fatted calves and they're all eating funny food. And so here's Isaiah saying there's something really different that's going to happen when this king reigns verse 8 then describes the curses removed he says we have a nursing child playing over the hole of a cobra a wean child shall put his hand over the adders dead and not be hurt the message of this is so powerful and what is so sad to me is so many have come along to this text And think that what this is describing is that, well, isn't it going to be great when God makes the earth a completely different place and we'll get to walk around outside and we're going to see lions walking around with fatted calf and they won't be attacking each other anymore. And we're going to see lions eating straw and, you know, we'll go out there and pick up snakes and it'll all be fine. It's just amazing how God's going to change this earth. And I submit to you that's what happens when you dive bomb into a few verses and rip them out of their context and don't see what Isaiah is doing in painting this full picture of the kingdom of God. I I submit to you that God does not have a great concern in fixing the world order and is sitting up there fretting his hands over the fact that lions eat calves. This is not the point of the text. God is describing something amazing here about what His new kingdom, when this David comes, what this new kingdom is going to look like. And He's describing, number one, it's an end of the hostility. And think contextually how important this is. Isaiah's been prophesying, you stand against God. His arm is outstretched against you. His anger is not going to end because of all of your sins. But He says, but when the new king comes... That hostility is going to end. There's going to be reconciliation. And it's not going to be strife with God anymore. In fact, you're going to be able to dwell with God. The wolf lying down with the lamb. You're no longer striving with God, but belonging to God. This kingdom is going to be different than what we're reading about in this prior kingdom of Israel that stood in strife against God and hostility against God. Those in the kingdom of God will not be in hostility To God the new nature that's going to come this is something Isaiah has already talked about back in chapter 4 when he speaks about this mountain that's going to rise up that they're going to put their glory in the Lord and here it's being described in verse 7 a whole new nature of the inhabitants of this kingdom he doesn't care about cows eating straw that's not the point the point is we are going to be completely different people. We won't be like we were before. Israel's not going to be in rebellion. They're going to be faithful to God, which is what Isaiah is promising here. He's going to create a new remnant. He's going to create people who are going to follow Him and serve Him. And there's not going to be a bunch of people who are going to say that they're in the kingdom of God who don't love the Lord their God with all their heart. It won't be possible. I'm going to put within them a new nature, a new spirit. And they're going to be followers of me. And finally, they're not going to be hurt by the curse any longer. I love verses 8 and 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Whoever belongs with God is no longer affected by the curse of sin. You're no longer separated from God. You're no longer under those things that cause you to be under the pain of sin and death and under the wrath of God. Those who belong to Him will not experience these things. Well, how are these things all going to be? How can these things happen? Well, verse 9 gives the answer with the word 4 right there. In the middle of verse 9, Four, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here's what's going to happen. For this radical change to occur. And for this new David to begin his rule over the earth, he says what's going to happen is that the message of the new king is going to spread all over the place. That's going to be the mechanism to bring about this glorious kingdom is that the good news is going to be spread throughout all the earth. And so here is a picture of what would happen when we come into the book of Acts of how this kingdom would be spread and how this message was going to the ends of the earth. And here is Isaiah prophesying it that people will come into that kingdom and no longer be separated from God and no longer be under the curse of sin. And they will have a new nature and have a new life because they've heard. Heard the word that is spread through the earth. And they've responded to it. Just as the waters cover the sea, the earth will be full of the knowledge of God. And that's what verse 10 now brings, is the hope of this glorious kingdom. It brings us this imagery of how this is going to be extended to all people, not just simply Israel. It's not just us who get to experience these three great truths. But all the world is going to experience it, not just Israel. That's what was so great about this prophecy is you could hear them think, hey, that'll be great. We'll come out of our destruction and He'll make a whole new Israel and we'll live here in Jerusalem again. Mm-mm. It's not Israel. All the earth is going to be able to participate in this. It will include the Gentiles as well and enjoy this new kingdom. Look at it in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of Him shall the nations inquire, and His resting place shall be glorious. Here's a great picture. He says, now this shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse, this root, this branch, He's going to be a banner. He's going to be this signal, fireworks to all the world. And they're all going to come to Him. And they're all going to stream to the Lord because of what He's about to do. The Apostle Paul used this very language. He quotes this very line in Romans chapter 15, which shows that we're on the right track about our interpretation of Isaiah. Romans chapter 15 verse 8. We'll get the whole context before we get to the quote. Romans 15:8, "For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy." As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, for his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And here's our quote. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The Apostle Paul comes along and says, this is what Isaiah was talking about that Christ was going to come. He's going to die for the world and we're going to go and preach a message to the world of reconciliation that the nations can come to God and no longer be under the curse of sin and no longer be under the scourge of His wrath and no longer be separated, but they can have a new spirit and a new heart and they will be followers of Him. He says that's exactly what Isaiah said and as he writes to the Romans, he says, that's the gospel we're proclaiming. This is the faithfulness of God to preserve His promises to the world. And so what we're seeing is then this picture of the Gentiles having equal opportunity to receive instructions and belong to the glorious kingdom under the rule of David. Instead of it being a Davidic rule for Israel alone, it's a Davidic rule for all the earth. Gentiles do not have to live in hostility with their God. They no longer have to be under the curse of sin. They can join to this kingdom if they will have the same faithful dependence upon God that Isaiah is calling for. And think about how that fits in the message of Romans. What has Paul argued from chapter 4 on? How did Abraham become part of the faithful people of God? He put his complete trust and faith in God. He comes out to chapter 15 and says you Gentiles also have the same access you don't have to be under the curse and have hostility anymore. Now this is, I think, really important to what we're looking at here. So many take these verses and say that's something yet to come. Wolf lying down with the lamb sounds like heaven or a renovated earth, a recreated earth. Here is the problem with that. Isaiah's prophecy had to come to pass in the first century. Because if it doesn't, then that means no Gentiles can enter the kingdom of God yet. There is an important time that's set here. When Christ comes and when this kingdom is set up, he says that's when the Gentiles are going to flow in. And that's when they will be part of this glorious kingdom and under the rule of David. And they won't ever have the curse under them anymore. They won't ever have the wrath of God against them. And if Isaiah is not looking to the coming of Jesus, then we as Gentiles are to be the most pitied. Because access has not occurred yet then. If this is future, then we're missing out. Paul takes Isaiah and says, what Isaiah is talking about was when Jesus came and he established his throne and his kingdom has come. And we are the recipients of the glorious ability to have an end of hostility, an end of curse, and to be able to have a new nature that people who can put their faith in God and find salvation. This is the message that He is calling for. As Jesus describes Himself as a signal to the world, a signal to the nations, a banner for the world to come in and His resting place will be glorious. To come to Him and find rest and relief. In fact, this is what Jesus Himself described in John chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus' own words. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Here is Jesus using Isaiah's imagery. I'm going to die. And when I'm lifted up, I'm drawing the nations to me. I am drawing the world to me. I am the signal to the world that everybody can come in and find salvation. And find mercy. The cross becomes the banner. That draws us in. And I hope in our Sunday morning series. As we study through Luke. You'll keep this lesson in the back of your mind. About the power of the cross. And what Jesus is doing on that cross. Is making access. To all the world. To an end of the curse. An end of the pain of sin and death. An end of being against God, an end of God's wrath against us and us being able to be joined faithfully to him. A message of reconciliation is found on the cross. The second chapter of Ephesians is so powerful with that in first describing our ability to be reconciled to God and then going on and saying how there's no longer Jew or Gentile, but there is now only one body that we are joined in him. Notice how it ends. Look at this Exodus in verse 15 of chapter 11 of Isaiah. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. and He will wave His hand over the river with His scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and He will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of His people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. A new king... David and a new exodus rather escaping than escaping from Egyptian slavery. Now the world can escape from sin slavery can escape from Satan's grasp. He says a highway is going to be built and they will walk across it like they did back in the days when they crossed the Red Sea and they will come into the promised land and they will find a glorious rest with the Savior who gave it to us through a cross. Isaiah's message is glorious. Pull your songbooks books out. we we'll sing the invitation song.